3: Thank <music> you.
4: Hello, and welcome to another spooky special. I am Liv, and this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, here for all your spooky, scary needs. Today, we are revisiting an episode from last year, another. I spoke with Antonia Aluko, who's well-versed in the world of ancient witchcraft and intersectionality and so much more. Antonia and I discussed the famed Greek witches Circe and Medea, but specifically how they appear in the very Roman Ovid's work. Because, well, they're, they're particularly fascinating in that context. They're unique as hell. There is just, there's so much more to this episode. How Medea serves as a foreigner, how both of them are Greek, but being written by a Roman and how that contrasts to Roman witches. It's endless and endlessly spooky. Conversations, which witch is the best witch? Ovid's Medea and Circe with Antonia Luco Witchcraft, but then it was like intersectionality as well, right? Like, tell me what you yeah. study. It's so exciting.
5: So... Um, just a little general intro about me. Yeah. Um, I'm doing a first year PhD student and I'm doing my PhD at UCL, um, University College London, and my projects on witches and intersectionality, but specifically like the intersectionality of uh, magic use and gender and ethnicity in imperial Latin
4: text. It's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, but interesting. <laughs>
5: Yeah. Uh, so, what I'm kind of really focused on is kind of viewing witches as intersectional beings in the ancient world, um, especially because of their characterizations, which um, kind of set them off as like a ethnicity within itself. So, witchcraft mm. is kind of like it's own, it has its own history, its own culture, its own associations and myth. So, then witches, then in this in the intersectional context, are not only just women who use magic, but also women with their own very specific kind of cultural heritage. And so if we look at witches using intersectional theory kind of like as their magic use being an extra layer onto their discrimination in the ancient world, then we get a very, very specific picture of this kind of overly extreme, very chaotic, very monstrous figure whose, you know, sexuality, age, gender, um, and ethnicity all play a part in how she's perceived in the ancient world. So that's kind of like a very general basis of my project. Um, So I'm looking at a variety of different primary texts. Right now, I'm very focused on Ovid. So I'm going to be talking Mm. about
4: him a lot. Um, I'm not going to complain about that. (laughs) (laughs)
5: <laughs> Our favourite problematic king. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. I'm really focused on Ovid at the moment, but I have been looking at Seneca earlier on this year. Um. My project, fingers crossed, should um be talking about um apuleius as well and Lucan and Horace. So yeah, like all all over the imperial pe- um, period. But like, what connects them is witches. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. Which you know. Hopefully it should be very, very fun. I'm enjoying it so far. So that's really good.
4: (laughs) I mean, witches are super cool. So it just sounds like a great project. So one thing that that immediately comes up for me as soon as I hear that you're talking about Rome um, is like one, obviously, as you know, I'm not particularly familiar with Rome. Always thrilled to have people on to teach me about Rome, but it just means I don't have like as much of a background myself. But one thing that came up when I last spoke to somebody who talks about Roman witches um, is The thing that stands out for me the most is the difference between Greek and Roman witches. So obviously, I just want to hear you talk generally, but I definitely like that's a thing that's always fascinated me. So I'm curious, kind of I'm like already bringing it to Greece. That was not my intention. We will talk about (laughs) Rome. But it, it. you know what I mean, though? Like the witches in Greek mythology are like... Circe and Medea, and they're like really powerful and badass, and there's definitely like all the you know, there's other aspects to them, but they're not like demonized in a way that they seem to be in Rome. So I'm I'm so fascinated to hear everything you have to say basically around that.
5: Yeah. (laughs) That actually takes up a huge part of what I'm talking about and like the bit I'm writing because the, the witches in Ovid are Um, actually, well, at least I'm talking on the basis of the Metamorphoses, which is the Mm. main text I'm focusing on in terms of... And a good one. Um, It's it's a very good one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in the Metamorphoses, the two main witches are Circe and Medea. So Mm. we've got these two women who've got a huge legacy behind them in multiple different ancient texts. And Ovid takes them and he makes them his own in very specific ways he kind of um takes these you know these figures who have like such a huge history and legacy from Euripides and from Homer and you know I think Apollonius as well so like many different texts Mm. here like we've got lots of different like reference points for him to use and he takes them and he makes them into these figures of complete monstrosity um like we can't even recognize them almost from their Greek heritage because he makes them the absolute extreme.
4: Hmm.
5: And it's really interesting how he does that because then if you look at his other texts, for example, the uh, of the Amores, um, so his love poems, um, mm-hmm. and you see the witches in that, then it's like, there's such similarity. So when we move on from like the the Greek imagination into the Roman one, and we see these these witches, it's a very much a distinct version um of of the witch and the magic use that we see which is highly demonized and i truly believe that it has something especially at least for the period i'm working on which is imperial um latin literature so um we're talking like augustus onwards i think it really starts off with the augustan marriage laws because if we see that we're, we're seeing laws being put in place that regulate and that kind of put jurisdiction on what a woman's body should be allowed to do you know should they be allowed to reproduce who with and when and then you get these witches in, in these li- in the literature who completely disregard that who say you know what to hell with this i'm gonna do what i want and they're gonna use their magic to do exactly what they want how they want and one particular witch like like i'm saying the amores who comes to mind is dipsas um who essentially is this aged woman who you know advises of its lover Corinna um to kind of like go for a rich man and the way he describes her in that text is absolutely insane and you have to put into context this is one of the first encounters I've had with like Roman witches because when we see witches especially in the um British education system we just think of you know Salem witch trials Mm -hmm. we don't actually like think of like oh there was witches before the 1600s what so this is my first encounter of roman witches and I actually like have some of it here this is like the translation from poetry in translation and it's by A.S. Klein so it's really super accessible which is why I like them and it's also the one that I first read so he says that there's like this certain old woman called Dipsass and he he essentially says that she's never sober um she's
3: (laughs) perfect (laughs) way to start
5: (laughs) yeah he's like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she's never seen he says she never seen she's never seen dawn with rosy horses um mother of dark memnon so she's she's never seen um sunrise whilst yeah. being sober <laughs> 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 um and then she's like she's she's learned uh the magi's tricks and cersei's and charms so instantly she's being harkened back to cersei so like the reader like instantly knows you know what I'm talking, we're talking about Cersei here. I know exactly the kind of witch. Um, And then he says, she knows what herbs to use, how to whirl the roarer, and the value of slime from mare on heat. When she wants, she can make cloud gather in the sky. When she wants, she brightens the day with a full sun. And if you believe it, (laughs) I've seen stars drip blood, blood red the very face of the moon. I suspect she changes at will in the shadows of night and her old woman's body grows feathers. So instantly, (laughs) you've got this woman who's literally the most horrifying thing known to man (laughs) being described to us. And not only that, she can use magic, she knows how to use herbs, she can draw down the moon and change the way the moon is seen. And if you think about how witches are perceived in the Greek imagination it's completely different mm-hmm. it's um you know we go from like you know the delicate wishes you help you along your journey and make sure everything's going to be fine and then obviously at the end of Medea um of Euripides version we get you know um a, a, a quite monstrous view of of her but nothing to the extent of this this is a whole new level um and you can instantly see how her age comes into play it's not mm-hmm. just the fact that she uses magic it's the fact that she's an old woman she you know can't really you know she can't really live her life without Ovid saying all of this stuff first of <laughs> of <all. laughs> it's like oh you know what I'm just gonna advise someone who I really like and it's like no nope, Ovid's not happy with you and unless you get this like perception of her that's oddly quite horrifying <laughs>
4: yeah i that's the one thing i remember too it just as soon as you're saying that is like the roman witches tend to be more of that kind of idea of like an old crone that really like old and decrepit and like gross like he's they're they're described as like pretty gross whereas yeah in greek like for all medea's crimes like she is young and presumably beautiful based on kind of everything that happens around her and the thing about euripides too is like it is bad obviously what she does but like he really gives you reasons to understand her in a way that is always- obviously my favorite thing like I, I talk about it near constantly but but like you get it you're like yeah you know she did these horrific things but like I wouldn't do it myself but I can see how she got there whereas this witch is like nah she's just fucking with shit like she's just causing trouble
5: and that's where like Medea of Medea really interests me because oh, yes. I, 100% like you I absolutely love Medea um especially the Euripides version because I I read it and I was like oh my gosh like I can understand exactly why she did that like it yes. was so justified you know we hate Jason you know screw him um, <laughs> <laughs> um but then we get to Ovid's Medea and she is um the most unsympathetic character um and I truly believe that it's because he Wants to, he wants us not to like her. He doesn't want us to sympathize with Medea in the same way that Euripides does. Um, yeah. And it's really clear because in the beginning of um, of Ovid's telling of Medea in the Metamorphoses of Book Seven, he spends a good hundred lines giving her a soliloquy, um, and in that she's essentially saying that she shouldn't love Jason. She shouldn't allow it. You know, this shouldn't be happen. You know, she shouldn't help him with the golden fleece. Um, She's just leave him alone because this is not good. And like, she's going to lose her homeland. And it's like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. I understand. You know, she's saying that she shouldn't go for him. And that makes her sort of redeemable because she then resembles, you know, the girl in his love poetries
2: mm.
5: who kind of, you know, is just, you know, umming and ahhing about whether or not she should go for her love. And she's relatable. And then all of a sudden, she starts to help Jason. And then she becomes this horrifying character. And it starts as soon as this soliloquy ends. Cupid turns his back on her. He's literally like, you know what? No. I'm washing my hands. I have nothing to do with this girl. You know, it's it, I I have nothing to do with her. Like, so she she's basically rejected by Cupid. Um, he t- literally, you think the word he uses is like turgo. He literally turns his back on mm. her. And then the line after that, she's like, "Well, I'm going to go to Hecate now." <laughs> since, <laughs> since Cupid won't help, it's like the kind of sense of like, since Cupid won't help me, I'm sure Hecate will. Yeah. Um as soon as she does that, he, s- he sees like how she's she's picking her magic use through Hecate over her love. Um, so something that's more relatable to the reader of just you know falling in love and not show like un- this kind of forbidden love, not sure if I should go for it or not. Then turns into, oh, I'm just going to use my magic to make everything happen. If the gods won't help me, I'll use my magic. And, you know, that works for a little bit in Ovid until you get to the point where she's trying to um, save his father. So I'm never sure how to say his name. It's like Eason? Oh, oh
4: okay. gosh. Don't even. I... The amount that I hate saying that name because it feels wrong no matter how I say it. So, yeah, I'm with you. And also we can just say Jason's father.
5: (laughs) Jason's father. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Jason's father, essentially, when she's rejuvenating him, so basically like he's about to die when they find when they eventually get back there, he's about to die. So they're like, oh, you know what? Might as well save him. Um, So Jason begs Medea like, hey, can you just save my dad, please? And um she's like, Well, Hecate wouldn't allow that. So now we've got Hecate's turning her back on her. So not only is Cupid like, no, I'm washing my hands, even Hecate is like, uh-uh, this is not for me. <laughs> <laughs> and she still does it. She's she's like, you know what, Hecate won't allow it, but I'm gonna do it anyways. So we've got this this woman now who not only transcends the gods, but also transcends like moral authority and mortal authority because she's eventually as we know she doesn't listen to jason anyways she doesn't care what jason thinks eventually because she ends up killing her kids so we end up this medea who's neither human nor supernatural but something else and something mm-hmm. more terrifying because of that so it's almost along the lines of seeing Medea as this fully formed character who we started off with as a young girl falling in love, and by the end, she is this this thing almost, not even like characterized as a person, mm-hmm. um, because of the way that Ovid kind of displaces her from what we thought we knew.
4: I love that. So uh, I've definitely read the Medea sections in in Metamorphoses um but it was a while ago now so the only thing that i can remember like really distinctly though and i remember i like like was talking about this once and it's like the thing i know specifically is from ovid and no one else is that moment when she either it's for the potion for jason's father or um or the when she's like about to kill the other king um pelias um with like his daughters and everything like, because she rides around, like, the whole world on her dragon chariot. And it's, like, the most badass moment of anything ever. Like, she goes everywhere. And it's, like, I'm just riding on my dragons. Like, just getting whatever potions I need. So I always thought of her as, like, awesome from that. But I'm realizing I don't actually remember any of, like, the actual characterization of her. I just remember her riding around her dragon chariot.
5: But that part is also so interesting, because when you look at what Ovid says while she's traveling, she's basically, you know, lads torturing Greece through Greece. That's literally what's about to happen as she like stops off and goes over all of these places. Yeah. And if you read it, like he's actually mentioning places where things of either very disastrous forbidden love ultimate monstrosity or references to other uses of magic occur so um like and some of these references are only found in ovid either because you know we don't have any you know sources back from from um, the ancient world that tell these stories or because they're his own inventions so he's literally as she's riding around on that chariot he's literally saying you know look at all of these stories and references I can make up of utter monstrosity and think of Medea, because Medea is worse and she's my creation here. Um, so it's kind of like comparing and uniting all of those parts of the Mediterranean through her otherness and marginalization. And we get this view of Medea who is not only, um, you know, at that point, at the height of her monstrosity, literally, because she's like in the sky. <laughs> but also (laughs) but also because she's literally like this is the point where she's murdered multiple people she's she's got so much blood on her hands they're just red now um so we've got this view of Medea, and then we've also got these like little anecdotes here and there which which are like stories of oh you know um oh you know do you not remember that story of like this person killing another person yeah okay let's move on to the next one and there's like 30 different references to different people and places um, in that little section. Oh,
4: um, I have to reread I this favorite. again. I'm, I'm like, oh, my it's God, how do I not remember this? So
5: fun. I can't wait. I love it. <laughs> it's so, so fun. And um, one of my favorite references um, that he makes throughout the entirety of Medea's story, because there are a lot, <laughs> are the ones to Cersei because it kind of links um, book seven and book 14, which funnily enough are seven books apart exactly so you've got mm. in two different halves of the met you've got one witch for each half and that's almost like it's too much we can't put any more witches in this in this book because that's just too much monstrosity so you've got these two witches equal distance apart both mm. very similar to each other both the descendants of Helios both um, able to wield magic described as ethnically other described as you know kind of close to the gods but still very very distant and you've, you've got them on both halves of these stories and one very firmly set in greece and the other actually quite close to rome so hmm. the location of circe in in ovid's met is actually in sicily so oh, okay. that itself is trippy <laughs>
4: Yeah, like they're making her Greek by making it like Magna Greca, but then also like explicitly not. Yes. So
5: it's kind of like this this closeness to Rome, but also mm-hmm. it's it's like okay, it's a farther enough us distance that, you know, we can we can breathe a little bit, but it's still terrifying because it's mm-hmm. like she's no longer in this mythical island that we don't know about. She's in Sicily. <laughs> she can get to us (laughs) and that's the terrifying (laughs) thing it's it's so interesting how he does that because like obviously he's guiding us closer and closer towards the end of the book to you know actual history and Julius Mm. Caesar and Augustus but in order to do that he has to get closer to Rome he has to get closer to where the reader is and and real life and bring such a mythical character he's so terrifying so close to Rome really makes those tensions between closeness and farness and marginalization and colonialization really pop
4: yeah so so oh my god I want to hear about so many different things in in what you've just said I have lots of questions already but specifically let's start with so how does Ovid characterize Cersei because I really I don't think that I've read those bits like Because I've read so much of The Odyssey that I never get around to that. I I also every once in a while realize that I've literally never read the end of Metamorphoses when he goes into Rome. Like when he starts talking about actual Rome, I'm like, oh, right. I have no idea what any of that says. So I'm fascinated by what he does with Circe because, yeah, I, I mean... Quick ramble, but like Ovid is so interesting in Metamorphoses specifically because he is so explicitly telling Greek stories through a Roman. Mm-hmm lens that like that alone makes that work so unique and and like you're saying too in like we often don't have an earlier source and that doesn't mean that he's not working off an earlier source but if he is we don't know it and that in itself is so interesting like what did Ovid invent and what is he basing things on that we don't know about and anyway that's all to say please tell me all about Ovid's Cersei.
5: (laughs) Oh she's absolutely glorious I love Ovid's Cersei I think it's Okay, this is going to be a very controversial opinion, but I think she's <laughs> my favorite iteration of Cersei. Ooh. Um, just because the stories we get are so explicitly monstrous that it you have to actually read that and then go back to the Odyssey and read it and be like, hold on a second, what parts did he pick up and what parts did he make himself? Um, yeah. so we start off book 14 with Cersei. So This is the last book before we hit Rome, which has its own significance in itself. Mm -hmm. So we start off with Cersei and um, the previous book has uh, this this man named Glaucus, who essentially then at the end of book 13 says, you know what, I need help because I'm in love with this girl and I can't, you know, she's not in love with me. She's rejected me. So I'm going to use Cersei's help. So he's running to go find Cersei. And then we find Cersei and boy, does he wish he didn't. Because um, <laughs> essentially the girl that he is in love with is Scylla.
4: I'm getting flashes to Madeline Miller. I'm just like, oh, I'm like, oh, right. This is where Madeline Miller got all of that. And I'm remembering yes. that so specifically now. Yes.
5: So this is the Scylla who we know as the sea monster who then, you know, is well, yeah, Homer Homer warns that Odysseus should not go near. Mm-hmm. so that's the Scylla we're talking about and as we know from the Odyssey it's never really explained how Scylla got there it's just mm-hmm. more of like eh, this is her um, <laughs> but and also we get the origins of Charybdis now
4: Ooh, so I, I know I love Charybdis so much
5: <laughs> me too I love how it's just kind of like this giant whirlpool like oh where did it come from yeah. no, no no one knows no, no. one
4: knows <laughs> Sentient, but like also just a whirlpool oh it's badass it's so good.
5: Um, so essentially, he goes he goes to Cersei, and Cersei's like, you know what? You know what would be even better revenge instead of like me making you like fall in love with her or making her fall in love with you? Um, I could just, you know, fall in love with you myself, and you could be like my husband, and it'd be great. So can we just do that? And she, he's like, uh uh-uh, I don't want this. <laughs> he's like, I did not consent. <laughs> I don't want this. Um, and she's like, Hold on a second. Did you just say no? and she's furious and she's really pissed off and she's like "Mm, I'm not happy about this um so I'm gonna do something instead so she goes to the pools where Scylla like you know usually chills and relaxes and she curses the pools with herbs and then Scylla turns into the sea monster and the description is actually her her groin so her genitals turn into like barking dogs <laughs> so she's basically turned her vagina into barking dogs and so that has its own connotations because obviously that means that Glaucus can now no longer have sex with Scylla so that's its own thing and then after all each other, each, you know, after she does all of that then Glaucus goes to her and he's like, no, 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 this is too much. You've done something so <laughs> monstrous that I can't even stand to be here. And so he literally like hightails it and he's like, I'm out, peace out. <laughs> and um, then we kind of continue on the story. So that's the origin of, of you know Scylla and Charybdis, because then those whirlpools that she she was in turns out to be Charybdis eventually. Of course. So this story this entire story I should mention is being told by Macareus, and Macareus is one of um, actually one of Odysseus's crew who huh. then ends up like giving directions to Aeneas as he's going to Rome. So that's how we get this entire story. So then he tells, you know, he recounts the rest of it and how, you know, um, it- Odysseus and the crew end up in all their travels and we get this like mini odyssey that's like you know one short story long so he comprises the entirety of like books like I think it's like books seven to eleven in like about a couple of hundred lines which itself is his own feat Um, and we get this like abridged version of the odyssey that's like Hold on a second. Is this actually the Odyssey or this is the bootleg Odyssey? <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to where he meets Circe. So where Odysseus meets Circe, and Odysseus, his uh, well, his men obviously as he gets sends them in. She turns them into pigs, and the description there is absolutely like chef's kiss. It's perfect because what it describes is that she's taking away their voices, and so Macarius. Um, is like he was um ter- in the storyline. He's turned into a pig. Mm. So then describes his own voicelessness, and it's one of the only descriptions in the Odyssey where we get not only the story of like human to animal metamorphosis, but animal to human, and that's mm. why the story is often quite picked up by you know um, other classical commenters. Because it's one of the only iterations we get of, okay, this person was an animal, but now they're coming back to human. And the way that Ovid yeah. describes it, it's just kind of like, oh, I, I wanted to speak to say like, oh, I'm so glad that I'm a human again. And I couldn't because I was just so filled with grief from the entirety of the experience. And it's like, you get this kind of PTSD kind of like experience through Macarena's eyes. Yeah. And I think like um my my favorite part of that is when she... Um, so we always assume from the Odyssey that like, you know, she just spent a whole year like having sex with him um, and just having like having a jolly old time. But the way that she, <laughs> but the way she describes it, well, the way Ovid describes it is as um, a marriage. So she takes him in to the Thalamos. So like literally the marriage bed. Um, mm. So it's just kind of like pseudo wedding. And it's the way she kind of twists law here and twists the idea of marriage. and and this kind of like um, harkens back to what I was saying at first with the the marriage laws because these witches if you see if you go back to the Medea really really quickly they constantly are seeking marriage it's not just you know I'm just gonna have a little fling. I'm gonna have live my life enjoy myself you know hot girl summer (laughs) it's not that It's, it's literally I want to marry you you should marry me and with the Glaucus story again what she says is I want marriage with you with Odysseus again she wants marriage and with the next story that follows she again seeks marriage it's never just okay you know just gonna have a little bit of fun it's a commitment here that's being made and being searched for and every single time these women who seek marriage are rejected because of their monstrosity
3: hmm
5: So the final story of Cersei in book 14 is uh, with picus and it's the o- origin of the story of um, how we get the woodpecker. Oh. Um, <laughs> so picus is in love with this girl called Canons and, you know, everything's going perfectly fine until he accidentally runs into Cersei's grove and Cersei sees him and falls in love with him instantly. And she's like, okay, so you're going to marry me, right? Third time lucky. (laughs) And he's like, nope, I'm in love with cannons. And she's like, you know, pissed as per usual. (laughs) And was like, you know what? If you're not going to marry me, then I'm going to like turn you into a woodpecker. And then his men follow after him and are like, "Um, so where's our king? (laughs) And this, I spent like a good two hours just looking at this line but they say that she s- recited curses and spoke magic words, worshipping unknown gods with unknown incantations, mm. right? So at first I was like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. That's fine, that's fine. And then I looked up what word he used for unknown. And mm. you could believe my excitement when he used the word ignoto. So that word, is usually like, when you look at commentaries, they say, oh, just translate it as unknown or unfamiliar, but the etymology of that word means foreign. So oh. she's speaking to foreign gods here. She's speaking, you know, with a foreign language, a foreign, um, uh, well, Ovid likes to use the word Kanmina when he speaks of witches as they're, they're conducting their spells, they're singing it. Mm. So she's literally singing a foreign song, speaking these to, to these foreign gods, and her magic words. And that's what brings in ethnicity here for me. It's the fact that not only is she, you know, quite close to Rome, but not she's not really Sicilian. She's something else because she mm-hmm. comes from the gods, because she's a descendant of the gods. But she's also speaking a language that isn't, you know, that isn't Roman. It's not Latin. It's not Greek. It's completely foreign. And that's what lets her transform um, Picus. It's what lets her yeah. do all of this. Um, so that's, you know, it's a, it's a fun line.
4: (laughs) Yeah. So we've got these two like quote unquote barbarian witches like spread throughout and causing all this trouble. Oh, I love that.
5: It's so great. I, I'm not going to lie. I literally, I've spent months writing about this and I, there's just more every time I sit down, I'm like, Oh, you know what? I think I've thought of everything that I could do. And I just keep finding more, um, which is fun. We love it. <laughs> yeah.
4: Can I tell um, you something I just thought of with all of this? Yeah, Um. Please. So one thing that's never really occurred to me, and this is why I love conversations, because it just makes you think about things in a different way. Like I just, it's great. Um. So I've never really thought about why 80s and Medea are, are like from Colchis. And then I'm thinking of now like in association with Circe as well. Like it's always felt weird to me that these children of helios these children of like a major titan god are barbarians are not greeks um and now it seems like i'm not i'm sure this is obvious to some or maybe i'm you know intentionally discrediting myself but like it's where the sun is from (laughs) like they're coming from the east and so they're seeing the sun rise in the east and and like, therefore, we get these eastern gods, and I just never thought about it this way. Now I'm like, I feel like this was obvious, but maybe it's not. I'm gonna take it as not. But I'm ca- now I'm just it's like running through my brain of like we've got these eastern gods, these quote unquote barbarian gods, but really it's just because the sun is literally in the east.
5: That now I'm obsessed with insane. This. That's so
4: smart. <laughs> it's so fun, right? Like that's so how did they not think about that (laughs) i just i it's and now i'm like oh my god like it's so interesting like of course they're from colchis it's literally the east the sun comes up obviously they're over there that means they can't be greek because the sun isn't in in greece that's
5: so smart like genuinely (laughs) i i had never thought of that
4: that i'm so glad i'm so glad because i think of it and i'm like is this a thing that everybody already realizes so i'm very glad that it's not
5: I'd never thought of that I just was like oh you know they're connected and it's like I I never thought of that
4: yeah because I I think it all comes down to like the thing that runs through my whole podcast which is that like we are modern people who live in this modern world with a modern understanding a modern understanding of storytelling and narrative structure and so we often like attribute these types of things to like well that was just like a story decision like it was just like a narratological decision to to like make Aetis the king of Colchis because like okay he's from over there or what have you like whoever was first writing that story we think we just they wanted to do that and it's like no that they never wrote stories like we write stories there's always a reason for something it's never just like a random choice to put somebody somewhere and it's like in hindsight, like, obvi- obviously, it's not a random choice to put these explicitly like important Greek deities in not Greece. Like Obviously, there's a reason for it. Anyway, yeah, it's
5: kind of like very this. Kind of tension of distance. Um, yeah. where it's like, oh, you know, they're very close to us. Like we're literally reading these texts. They're like right in front of us, but they're also far away, which makes it safe um so it's kind of like messing with that little bit of tension and pulling and tugging here
4: yeah and when then we get to like look at why like what it means that they're eastern so then it's like an examination of like what you're talking about cersei being like not greek even though she's greek you know and and medea being not greek and like okay well if they're explicitly these eastern deities just by nature of the sun rising in the east then then how do we navigate that? Well, Circe gets to speak this foreign language and and Medea gets these barbarian tendencies and oh, it's so interesting.
5: It's very fun, I'm not gonna lie. I do really really enjoy just like spending my hours. I'm like, oh, well, I could have written a whole paragraph or I can figure out why this one reference from Ovid is relevant. Like there's one particular reference uh, when Medea is like going across um, the Mediterranean of the telcanez and i was like hold on a second who are they i was like never heard of them before in my life um so i was like you know what i'm going to figure out why he put those in and who the hell are the telcanez so i was like you know what first things first (laughs) get the commentary out it's got the commentary out and they're like oh it's a reference to an ancient race of magic users and i was like Hmm. what i was like okay that sounds cool then i go a little bit deeper if, then I go a little bit deeper And I, I'm i like okay Where did he get that name from Like, I'm going to just type it into Google And then I see Calimachus And I'm like Calimachus You mean the same Calimachus that inspired A whole bunch of Ovid And his short poetry So I was like hmm let's read some Calimachus Then Calimachus then tells me That the Talcanes were like An ancient evil race Of magic users Who basically did something to the gods we don't know what they did something to the gods and they were essentially destroyed like wiped off the face of the planet because mm. they offended the gods um which if you think about it a lot of connotations and relations to medea then because like yes. if we've got this ancient race of magic users literally wiped off of the face of the earth because they disrespected the gods and Medea's done so twice in her story like with cupid and hecate then i don't know i see links yeah. i see links
4: well well not to mention like though it's not necessarily explicit in in the versions of medea we have but like her her killing i guess just mostly her killing her children so like that Euripidean idea is like inherently the worst thing you can do right like if if anything's going to bring the furies down on you it's killing a family member so we don't have versions where she gets you know chased by the Furies but like you can presume that it happened so you even got like in in, you've got that those explicitly angry in the gods er, Cupid and and Hecate and then and then like it not so explicit but certainly the number one thing the gods are going to punish you for of like killing your family members
5: exactly and like um just to Continue on my my rabbit hole. I then mm. started thinking. I got like a little footnote, and the footnote was to Strabo, and I was like, "What? What does Strabo have to do with this?" So I literally went on a rabbit hole through, like, from Latin to Greek back to Latin, and then I went to Strabo, and I was like, "Hold on a second, wh- why am I being redirected to Strabo?" And turns out, not only did this race, you know, disrespect the gods, but they were also rivals to. Um, they were also rivals to Callicles, and I was like, "How hmm. can they be magic users and rivals?" Well, the first poem in um, in Callicles is, I think it is Etia, is basically called "Against the Telchines," where he literally says you know i hate these people because they hate my short poetry and apparently they've like mm. complained for years about how short his poetry is and he's like well my poetry needs to be short cuz i'm not going to write volumes and volumes and i was like okay cool 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 but then i'm what like what a weird complaint love-? i love that <laughs> exactly <laughs> it's so short. i was like cool 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 mm. he was like, like i don't like it i want epics and i'm like me too but like let the man write his poetry um <laughs> And I was like, what does this have to do with Medea? And I just had, I sat down with it for days. And I was like, what does this have to do with Medea? Why has he mentioned them? And then I remembered, who also writes short poetry? Ovid. Okay. So who also uses magic? Medea. Who, so he's basically saying that just like the Telkines are, rivals to Callimachus I've got my own rival and my rival is not only any old race of magic users it's Medea herself and not only I know and not only is it Medea herself it is Medea who is currently riding all across Greece has killed like four people by this point um and she's a better rival than you and also she can sing her own songs so it's not even like she is just, um you know, this figure who just wields magic. She also uses Carmina in the same way mm-hmm. that Ovid does. But her, her Carmina is one that causes monstrosity, while his Carmina is one where, you know, he can change forms, like he does, he says at the beginning of the Metamorphosis. So he's rivaling Callimachus here by modelling a kind of literary rival throughout yeah. his story. And that literary rival are the witches that he put in the Met. And it's like, it's this whole full circle moment. And it's like, I spent three days on this and I didn't sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. There's so many in that little passage of her like riding across the Aegean. Like there's Mm -hmm. so many little stories. that's like, oh, this is a random offhand story that relates to someone killing their family member. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. huh, wonder why he Mm -hmm. put that there.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, so it's kind of like you you get these little rabbit holes when you see Ovid and he's you he mentioned so many things offhand and I at first I was just like oh he's just doing this to show off so like saying like you know I've got like a whole storybook in my head like <laughs> gang gang <laughs> so at first it's like okay that's fine and then I'm like hold on a second he wouldn't just put that there for nothing like he said like there's no reason why he would put that there and fill up the you know the meter of like his lines for nothing so once you dig deep into those references you get anecdotes that relate to the main story and it's just it's a whole full circle oh, moment it's great
4: I just want to read so much more of the metamorphoses I uh, I'm like oh my god I, I don't know nearly enough now I, I'm obsessed with it
5: especially what I love about Ovid is you know we've mm-hmm. been talking today about two Greek, like mainly about two Greek witches here, inherited by like you know from Greece. He is essentially right rewriting these stories um as his own kind of fan fiction of like uh-huh. what he wants to happen and how he wants to perceive these witches um who kind of lie on the extremes of femininity and of ethnicity as well. So what i'm kind of mainly focused on is how we can view them as intersectional beings who are being discriminated in this text who are being portrayed in a very specific way that kind of makes us not want to like them and why that might be
4: yeah well *Metamorphoses* is so great for like you're saying fan fiction because it really it's like he's doing his own whole thing like these it, it, it is a roman source he's coming at it as a roman but at the same time like 90% of the stories in there are explicitly greek so he but he doesn't have the same connection and he doesn't have the same like skin in the game i guess as as like the greek authors writing these or or not even writing but like you know putting them to paper after after so many years or generations of oral storytelling like those people were coming at them as like this is our history and culture this is our like whole world whereas then ovid comes in and he's kind of like i can do whatever i want with this because it isn't my history it isn't my culture like i can look at it in however in whatever way i want and that's kind of why i love him his stories are so like visceral and they're just they're just so interesting his versions not to mention yeah. i think that he actually like is interested in in examining the trauma particularly like sexual trauma amongst the gods and things in a way that no other author tends to really like be into but oh I just I'm so thrilled to be having this be like revolving entirely around the metamorphoses (laughs) it's something that like I haven't gone back to that text in too long now and I'm realizing that and I'm like okay like how how can I dive back in
5: Because I first read it in translation. I first read everything in translation.
4: Um, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know Latin or Greek, so no judgment there.
5: <laughs> it's taken me a hot moment, and I'm still on the journey. But I will get there eventually. Eventually, I will be so fluent in Latin and Greek that I will just be able to just interchangeably use it in everyday conversation.
0: Ugh. I but love It's that. taking
5: a moment because, like you know,
0: not it's everyone not
5: grows up knowing latin and greek and studies it in school like that's not a thing and we need to break out of the norms of of expecting that of people as well um so what i was gonna say was that (laughs) um i first read it in translation and so in translation a lot of this these details are omitted they're not really Mm. like brought in because they're either it doesn't fit the the natural flow of the storyline like these references don't really help the natural flow And they're not as important to what we're trying to get to, which is the main overarching Mm storyline. So they're usually omitted or if they're mentioned, then they're like offhand lines that don't really make much sense. Um, So when you go back to the Latin and you look at it and you're like, this is a completely different text. (laughs) This is Mm -hmm. not what I read. (laughs) Um, Like, for example, a really good example of that actually is when in Mm -hmm. Medea's soliloquy, when she essentially starts talking about why she should go for Jason because she's kind of tossing and turning between the two options she kind of spends a hot moment just going well you know what why would i want to stay in colchis anyways why would i want to stay in this barbarian land where there's no art and there's no culture and like where um you know i would be so much better off in greece anyways and it's like it comes from this very colonialist standpoint if you look back at it Mm. from like saying like you know barbarian culture doesn't have anything to give us except people like Medea you know otherwise we've got you know arts and culture of Greece and why would I not want to go there and I'm going to be a hero once I've saved Jason and everyone will love me and I wouldn't have ever known she said that unless I looked at the original because it doesn't Mm specifically say that in a lot of translations that that's it doesn't accurately kind of get that across of like, hey, this is what he's actually saying. I truly really believe mm. that we should get like literal translations out some of every single text, even if it doesn't make sense. Because you know it's so hard, right? Like you much.
4: Yeah. That's why I, yeah. I I refer to like two or three different translations with everything or I try to with everything I, I cover because yeah like you're just gonna get such completely different details or like just different meaning like some just conveys it so much better
5: so I kind of wanted to circle back around to like my my project as a whole and Mm -hmm. some of the things that generally kind of like why you know kind of why I got here into this point because I never actually like Properly had like a module on witches in the ancient world or anything like that. So my my journey towards doing witches and intersectionality in the ancient world is a bit of a roundabout one. Um, so because okay, this is a podcast and no one can actually see me. <laughs> I am a, a black woman. I'm also queer. Um, so I have like a very unique experience. In, um, in when looking at the ancient world, especially because I was when I first study classics was told that i would never find anyone like me in the ancient world which just isn't true
0: what i know
5: <laughs> i know that's i was also were no black people in the ancient world and that's
4: just jesus christ no, exactly. my god like <laughs> and yeah. so, no black <laughs> people egypt was super white i don't know what you're talking about
5: exactly so <laughs> um <laughs> that so coming into like studying classics um was truly an experience of not seeing myself and wanting to and mm-hmm. kind of saying you know what this can't be right I'm gonna find it and I'm gonna seek out something that resembles how I feel about my own experiences because you know why not and um, then in the third year of my undergrad I like we did this like uh, course on contemporary approaches and it was one of the best things because I could, could see the modules like coming up like the um the like what we're going to study mm. and intersectional theory I think was like week three and I was like hold on a second what's that because <laughs> like the first couple of weeks were on the sublime so I was actually like okay you know what I, like <laughs> I can get with that I know what that is but what the hell is intersectional theory and why have I not heard of it before um and we spent like a whole lesson just like Going on with uh, like um Audrey Lord, Kimberly Crenshaw, mm. um and kind of like why people who have multiple different um marginalizing factors or experiences are then kind of marginalized in social contexts, um and from that I was like we can use that in classics, <laughs> I was like what, <laughs> and then I was like hold on a second I'm gonna do something with this, <laughs> um. And then my master's came around because I couldn't use it by that point for my undergrad dissertation. So I was like really sad about it um, because by that point, I had already had a full-formed um, project, which ended up being on feminism in general. But it was like, I can't really make a detour right now. So then master's came around and I was like, I'm going to use that theory because that sounds great. Um, and I dug my heels into that and I absolutely loved it. And I did it on um, Plautus's Poenulus. Which is a mm. very understudied text <laughs> um, So if anyone listening to this Wants to do something on Plautus And his Poenulus, I'm very happy if you do <laughs> um, But essentially it's about um, It's a Carthaginian text um, In which oh, like shit. Plautus talks about um, How these Women are from Carthage You got kidnapped And then their dad comes to save them And they end up in Greece somehow And then they get saved And then they're like, oh, hold on a second. I'm not a female slave anyways. I was actually a freeborn woman. And so you get like loads of different um, experiences in that and identities in it in which you've got like a female slave who's from North Africa, who is very characteristically um, like probably of a dark skin tone as well, who's being talked about on the Roman stage (laughs) during the Punic Wars. And it's... An amazing text of like layers of different ethnicities and identities and it's very fun (laughs) and honestly one of my favorite texts um because reading it is one very funny because it's comedic text um but also really entertaining how you see you know um expressions of gender and sexuality and ethnicity portrayed because we are talking about prostitutes here literally like you know, um, procuring themselves out on stage um, in front of the Roman audience after the Second Punic War. Um, yeah. So very beautiful layers there. Um, yeah. And then I did that and my projects on that, loved it. And I was like, hold on a second, I could write more about intersectional experiences in the ancient world. And I was like, but what would I do it on? And I was like, hold on a second, let me think back to my undergrad dissertation which was literally on feminist views of and how we can perceive classics, and I did like um a whole section on witches in it, and and how we can see witches as like the utmost ex- um kind of versions of monstrosity and like women mm-hmm. becoming like a necessary evil for Rome. So then I went back to that and I was like, I can do something with that. That looks good. Mm-hmm. And so I started my um uh, my PhD thinking I was going to do a project very generally on all intersectional experiences in imperial latin literature and then like obviously when you go through a phd you narrow and you narrow until you get to something Mm -hmm. that you're like i can write like a hundred thousand words on this and um i was like hold on a second i just want to talk about witches because there's something here and it's incredibly interesting but i don't see a lot of people talking about it in the way that i'm talking about it and mm-hmm. I think I can, I think I could write a hundred thousand words on it and kind of like getting to this point where I see these really specific experiences of where ethnicity and gender and um, often sexuality kind of come to play and kind of, and without using the word for intersect again, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. over these different kind of barriers of being marginalized but also being powerful in their marginalization and their power being a driving force for us to see their marginalization um it really interested me but also it felt like I was kind of drawing a kind of personal connection to an experience that I could resonate with so um yeah
4: I I love that that's so I mean it's just powerful but like it it reminds me so much of of how much I've learned from doing this show because, you you know, even just saying like in your undergrad learning, like or the suggestion that there's no one, you know, who looks like you or has a similar experience like in the ancient world is like so wild, but also so widespread. Like we have this whole idea of this like whiteness that's been put upon the ancient world in i mean for obvious like western supremacy reasons but then as soon as you like start looking at it with any kind of critical eye it's like i mean it it just ends up being so obviously ridiculous um i mean it it, uh, the the interactions that what i'm most interested in lately is like the, the interactions across the whole mediterranean in the east in north africa like the fact that in these stories we have like not only egypt but libya and ethiopia like all these regions of north africa that would have obviously had people with a darker skin tone and they're all interacting across the whole mediterranean world and it's like it seems to me it's such a like it's such an obvious thing that obviously people had all you know were were of all these different varying skin tones but then at the same time looking at like, the ways in which Greece and certainly Rome um, were also, like, super bigoted in their own way. And it was, like, not necessarily about skin tone, but it was, like, all about all these other things where it's, like, everyone has been problematic forever. But just, like, the level, the ways in which these things are an issue has varied so much. Like, that alone is is so fascinating. And I think it's really important to to talk about generally and, and like, and bring up in this way. But, but the witches specifically being being othered in that way like I have I have seen the connection in Roman witches of the way that they the Roman witches to me feel very anti-woman but but looking at Ovid's more specifically because I don't think I've I don't think the 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 conversations I've had or the thoughts that I've had on this have have touched on Ovid's because Ovid's feel so Greek that it's almost like they don't count but then but exactly everything you're saying it's like no they count in like their own way like they're they're greek witches but he still romanizes them in that very specific way
5: yeah and i think um like even just kind of understanding what my hope is through understanding the ways in which we see these imperial witches we can start to unveil and uncover some of the ways that real roman witches were perceived in rome so how does a person who you know uses medicine or magic navigate their ethnicity and their gender and their sexuality and age through the ancient world and of course like ability runs into it as well how does um someone who perhaps is uh you know for example someone from north africa who is a slave but is also someone who uses magic um like how are they perceived how are they differentiated and treated in rome how can we see that is it does it correlate to the literature does the literature tell us about that and that's the most for me at least that's the most interesting thing the fact that behind every single one of these these very fictional very literary very mythical characters we see in text there most likely is a real person that existed who shares some of those qualities and we can see and evaluate how if we can't see how evaluate how they were treated you know, literally, because we don't have the sources for that, we can see how people who share those characteristics are treated in text.
4: Hmm. Hmm. Oh, yeah. I love the idea of the real people behind it, especially in Rome, because, like, again, I don't have the greatest knowledge, but like, I know the Carthage of it all, and so, it, like, it, just that alone, they have such an interesting. Relationship with Carthage, but I'm sure that also meant that there were a lot, a lot of enslaved people from Carthage, and so you have that like inherently North African, like enslaved population, and what that would mean because they also probably had like a very specific or different, at least, relationship to magic or or witchcraft or or like um basically like early forms of medicine. But what if if they were doing it? in a way that it's like inherently so different from Rome, then Rome is immediately going to see it as witchcraft, particularly if a woman is doing it. And if a foreign woman is doing it, it's like, it's inherently witchcraft in a way that is sort of in itself fascinating.
5: Yeah. And I think it just draws back to the overarching like huge debate of what is magic? What is religion? How do we characterize that? Um, does it have anything to do with where or what that magic is? are we talking about Mm. someone's magic or someone else's religion that is just too different from what we perceive as normal um so that's also something that I'm going to be spending a good 10,000 words talking about
4: (laughs) yeah well when you have more on like the real people behind it if you do or any of that oh my god come back on certainly for anything but also like that's (laughs) fascinating just thinking about the the real people it reminds me i don't know if you listened to the episode i did with christy vogler who um, is looking at witchcraft and medicine yeah that one was so fascinating too because it it's so it touches on that like in a way where it's like if a woman was doing it it was witchcraft and if a man was doing it it's medicine and like that alone is so interesting but adding the like then the the issues of of like Foreign and and like the intersecting of of like the different regions and things even on top of that would be extra interesting.
5: And you know what's really funny is that when you mentioned that, it just reminded me that in Ovid's Met with Medea, there is a part in it where she tells Jason what herbs to use and what words to say, but mm. he's not a magician. Only Medea is. Medea is the sorcerer, but Jason isn't. Even when he uses the exact same tools that she does. Um, yeah. So it's yeah. like um, that's
4: really saying something. It's
5: really like perpetuating that connection between female magic and male medicine.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, oh, especially with Jason. It like really is just like salt in the wound too, right? Oh, like- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hate that guy. <laughs> oh, I mean, God, who doesn't? Who doesn't? He's just ridiculous. Oh, I, I'm i so fascinated with all of this. Like, I, I just hadn't realized how, I mean, I know Medea is always seen as like a quote unquote barbarian, but the idea that Cersei becomes that as well in Ovid and the then the inherent link that has two witches is brand new information and I'm kind of obsessed with it now.
5: Well, I've got, um, when I eventually finish my PhD, fingers crossed, um, you'll be one of the first people I send it to. Oh,
4: please. And just come right back on the show and tell me everything else that you've learned since then and we'll have a great time.
5: <laughs> yeah. It'll be super fun as well, because I would have then not only one finished so I can finally like exhale. Um <laughs> yeah. I would have done like other text as well probably mm-hmm. fingers crossed hopefully um drawn some other connections. Um because I can almost tell that I'm gonna have a lot of fun um comparing uh, Seneca's Medea. And Ovids, oh, yeah. because
4: yeah.
5: Seneca does something very different with Medea. He takes he doesn't take the Euripidean version at all. Um, he essentially takes Ovids and he's like, I can make it more bloody, <laughs> and it is the most gruesome thing <laughs> because he, he's literally like he talks about childbirth and and the womb and how that she's like giving up her children and it's kind of like this weird sensation of the foreigner being at the center of the household because she's a woman who's literally at the head of the household she's the you know the the mater in the in the family in the family but she's also the one who's going to kill her children and it's yeah. just this beautiful little juxtaposition that goes throughout his his um, entire play so definitely wow. something you should read if you haven't
4: i know i was just gonna say i know i i know i should read zeneca's medea and it's like i always it's it's on my list but i always forget it's there until somebody mentions it and then i'm like shit i really really want to read that but i just i need to read more rome more roman literature generally
5: yeah hopefully we can keep you on the Roman side for a little bit
4: (laughs) i know we'll see i just keep getting drawn right back to the greek you know
5: well, there's so much good things in Greece, though. There are so many good things. Exactly.
4: In Greece. Exactly. I'm fucking obsessed now with Ovid's Metamorphoses, and specifically Medea and Circe. And like, now I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of like how, how I can a- accompany this episode like with like a deeper retelling of those parts of Metamorphoses
5: specifically those two witches in Ovid like people often go straight to like the Her- Heroides, or go straight to the mm-hmm. uh cures for love when they're trying to find like Ovidian versions of Madeira and Cersei but in the Met itself it's just so great and I I know I've gushed about it for like almost hour and a half now but it, there's <laughs> so much and I feel like I've barely hit like the top tip of the iceberg there's so much oh
4: it's just yeah I I had no idea and that actually reminds me um just hearing you talk about Medea in Metamorphoses is so interesting when you compare it to Heroides it's been a while since I read that Heroides but like it always felt very sympathetic to her to me like it's very anti-Jason and pro-Medea and I is she very witchy in that I feel like she's not she's very human in the Heroides
5: yeah, I think almost because yeah, of her just kind of wrong. writing from her perspective, that might right. slightly change things, because it's like, of course, you're going to be sympathetic towards yourself. Um, yeah. But then the difference is like in the Met is that he's telling the story, which is very rare for the Met where like, you know, the, the stories are usually told by someone else, someone else is mm-hmm. for telling this but Ovid himself tells Medea's story. He tells us exactly how monstrous he thinks she is and exactly how horrifying he is.
4: Mm. And
5: I feel like that says it itself in itself all all we need to know.
4: Yeah, that's so true. Oh, I love that. Oh, it's just all so interesting. Fucking ancient sources. They're so fun. (sighs) This has been so interesting and so much fun. Thank you so much for doing this.
5: I have really enjoyed it. I was like very like, this is the first podcast I've ever done. So podcast version here. um, And and I've had so much fun, like genuinely, I have had so much fun just being able to just talk and like all of the cool things that I've found that may not wake its way to my like final piece. And it's just, it's nice. And I don't have anything good to plug. So follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, perhaps more colloquially known as the assistant producer. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you will get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. I am Liv and I love this shit especially spooky season. I just couldn't I couldn't resist. I'm bringing you everything for a whole week because happy Halloween.
0: <laughs> BP added more than 70 billion dollars to the US economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arcea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other
2: Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures
1: and disclaimers, and other important information.
3: Thank you.